You are listening to the Life Point Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Drew Meyer. For more information about other Life Point Church resources, please visit www.livethemessage.org. If your Bibles, you can open up to Mark chapter 2. I'm going to come down here because this is a small crew tonight and this will be intimate. It'll be awesome. I have felt compelled all week long to take some time this evening and speak into the culture of our church. Um, we are a people that God has been stirring in our hearts, uh, this, this uh, re-emphasis on prayer. It's like this age-old kingdom practice of prayer. And sometimes we, um, we grow numb to the, the, the most foundational practices of the kingdom of God, and prayer is one of those that I sensed like mid-2018, like a lack of urgency, a lack of desperation in my heart, that here I have this, this book full of promises and revelation of who God is, and yet it wasn't compelling to me. It wasn't compelling me to contend for great things in my day, and that bothered me. I was like, something's wrong. <laughs> and that should bother us if we're numb to the promises and the character that's revealed to us because we all have a responsibility to do something with it if it's revealed to us. And we have so much at our fingertips, and so God begins wrecking me in that way, in a good way, like our hearts need to be just wrecked sometimes. And... Uh, and so that's why, that's why our church here in 2019, we've been really emphasizing prayer um, so much. We've just been hammering at it, this foundational um, aspect of kingdom living, which is prayer, communing with God. Um, and so tonight, I want to I speak into a cultural norm for us as a church of waiting on the Lord, of prolonged periods of prayer, because I think these, these ideas of um, prolonged periods of prayer can be counterintuitive. Why would we wait on God if he already, he already knows what he's going to do, so we say, or so we think, or, or he, the, the, the answers, like Pastor Tony talked about last week through persistent prayer, they come quickly according to Luke chapter 18. So then why do we wait on the Lord? It can seem almost repetitive, some of our prayers of, of repetition. And I want to speak into that uh, this evening. This is actually an important part of the culture of our church and it actually speaks a lot to how, how we end our Sunday evening services of peop, as people that wait on the Lord at these, at these spaces here at the front of our sanctuary. There's actually thought into it. Um, we're actually really excited about what we feel like God is stirring in our church. So Mark chapter 2, I want us to talk about desperate prayer. And this, really this main idea that great desperation creates space for great faith. If we can learn to be a people that actually embrace desperation, and you don't have to search very far in this world to find desperate situations. I mean, I'm not even saying like turning on the news, like you just look down the street. My neighbor passed or stopped by my house today, and he's, he, he's an atheist and declared atheist, a professor at the university, and has an ailing back. I mean, he himself, and he has a um, estranged uh, wife and you know, a, a fam, family situation that be, could be considered desperate. Like, we don't have to search very far, they come to us. Desperate situations. And then, and then even in our own homes, we have desperate situations. Ailing bodies and financial strains and, and conflict, right? That's the world we live in. And then you even search in your own heart and you realize, wow, I have some desperate situations, anxieties and depressions and, and lows. So desperation is all around us. And, and we're, every time we enter into a desperate situation, face a desperate situation, we're at, really at a crossroads, we can allow that desperate situation to turn us away from God. We can harden our hearts to the Lord. 
Or we can allow that desperate situation to turn us towards God and we can actually press into God. And I want us to be a people that are discerning and thoughtful and obviously biblical and be a people that allow great desperation to create space for great faith. And here in Mark chapter two, there's a beautiful picture of great desperation creating space for great faith. And, and just before we dive into this, I want you to know that as a pastor, like, I empathize with desperate situations. Um, I mean, I, I really do. Like, my heart, that's why I do what I do. Like, I, I feel for the desperate situations that you all walk through. And I'm in the trenches alongside. That's why I come down here to your, to your, to your level. Like, we're all in this together. We're all facing desperate situations. And so I don't trivialize our desperate situations or your desperate situations. You, you have unique situations that I can't speak to and say that I, I know what you're feeling, but I'm saying I empathize with your desperate situations. And I believe that your desperate situation can unlock a great faith for the power of God to move in your situation. So Mark chapter 2, there's this amazing picture. This is actually a story that's, that's told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So there's three different accounts of this story, and so you can kind of get three different perspectives on the story. This is what it says, starting in verse 1. It says, And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days it was reported that he was at home. Word got out. Jesus is back. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. So tradition goes that, you know, obviously Jesus was from Nazareth. That was his hometown of Nazareth, born in Bethlehem, from Nazareth. But later, on, or later in life, tradition goes that probably him and his mother Mary, after Joseph passed away, they probably moved to Capernaum. So Capernaum became a, a, another uh, hometown for Jesus, and that became at least a home base of ministry for Jesus. So when Jesus came back to Capernaum, word got out. And the room, the house that, that he was staying at got flooded with people. And I, want to, I just wanted you to actually think of this crowd that gathered here at Jesus' home or this home that he was staying at because it's as diverse as, as any gathering you can think of. There are some that are they're, they're coming because they're like, um, they're religiously antagonistic to who he is. They're, they're skeptical. There are some that are genuinely curious that this is, this is the Jesus they ran around town with, you know, when they were, when they were teenagers. So they, they know Jesus. This is Jesus, their boy. Like, yeah, I'm going to go check this guy out. There are some that are, have this spiritual hunger and curiosity. Hey, people are saying he's Messiah, that he is, there's something spiritually significant about this guy. And there are some that are extremely desperate in dire situations. And we'll see one here in just a moment. But I point that out because I believe that no matter why a person stumbles into a church or a gathering like this, I believe that it's the presence of God that can change, in a, can change a heart in a moment. And as a church, what we're praying for is that God would give us the hungry ones. So we're praying that people would come in and they, they would have this like already recognizable desperation in their hearts, like this individual that we're gonna talk about here in a moment. But I believe that even the religiously skeptic, religiously curious, even those, those ones that stumbled in because just their friend was going, like they're just going along with the crowd, even that those ones, in a moment, the presence of God can change their heart and they can see God for who he is. I want us to be people that have that faith to believe anytime we gather that God could have somebody's number. Let's keep reading. And, then they, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. This guy had great friends. Amen? 
I mean, we, we need friends that, that in our desperate situations, they push us towards God, and they don't come up with all these reasons why you need to turn away from God. Cling to those types of people. Jesus is going to say, or it's going to tell us here in a moment that Jesus saw their faith. So he, these, these individuals that carried this paralytic, even, even Jesus recognized their faith that they had. And you need friends like that in your life. Cling to those relationships. Have friends, you know, have friendships out people, with people that don't know Christ, but cling to those relationships with people that, that draw you near to God in desperate situations. But then they come up with this just really interesting idea. Like out of all the ways to get Jesus' attention, they decide to, to dig a hole through the roof of, the, of this house. It's very destructive. It's like, that probably costs money. Somebody's home is, is getting destroyed. But that was the idea they came, they came to. This was great, extravagant action. So great desperation creates space for great faith, and great faith then grows into great action. And this is the true substance of faith. If you, if you cling to this, this desperate situation or a desperation in your heart, you allow it to grow into something, which is great faith, and you allow that great faith to continue to grow and brew in your heart, eventually it flows out into actual action, to great action, extravagant action. And I pray as a people that we would align ourselves with these, these types of testimonies of people that went to great lengths to get, to get before God. They dug through the mortar of the roof, they removed these tiles, we read about it in in the other accounts, in Matthew or Luke, and they remove enough tiles to lower this paralytic pretty much right in front of Jesus. Right. I mean, so they're, they're risking it all. They're risking embarrassment. They're risking financial loss if they're going to have to be the ones that pay for it. You know, they're, 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 risking, they're, risk, they're risking it all. It's great action. And there's so many other accounts of these, of these individuals who stepped out in great action, like blind Bartimaeus, this guy who, was, who didn't care if he was annoying everybody else. He's just crying out to Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's recognizing Jesus for who he is. Son of David, Messiah, have mercy on me. And they're all like, blind Bartimaeus. I mean, I don't know if they call him blind Bartimaeus, but Bartimaeus, shut up. Be quiet, be quiet, be quiet. And he's saying, have mercy on me, have mercy on me. He would not be quiet. Or the woman with the issue of blood for 18 years, she struggled with this issue of blood. And she sees Jesus and then she's like, this is my moment. Sure, she, wasn't, she didn't have all the strength in the world, but she mustered up enough strength to make her way through this crowd just to touch the hem of, of his garment. And in that moment, that, that great action was her breakthrough. And time and time again, we have these, these nuggets, these beautiful nuggets of, of testimonies that we can align ourselves with to be people that, that are compelled to great action in our place of desperation. So then we come to verse five. It says, and when Jesus saw their faith. So any idea that your faith is just something up here, some idea, some concept, you cannot, um, you cannot live with that anymore. I'm, I'm, I'm giving you that truth. And from now on, you cannot just come up with this excuse that faith is something purely internal. Faith has to result in action. True, sub- substantial faith results in action. And Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven. Verse six, and now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He's blaspheming. 
Who can forgive sins but God alone? I think it's so fascinating that following this verse that says Jesus saw their faith, the very next verse highlights this group of people that are actually antagonistic to faith. These are the ones who they default to doubt. They, de- they default to cynicism and unbelief. And I feel like in our heart of hearts, and Jesus it says that here in just a moment, it's going to say Jesus discerned their hearts. In our heart of hearts, we have to be so discerning to watch the, the thoughts that we allow ourselves to cling to. Because these, these thoughts, they begin to take root in our hearts. And we need to uproot these, these thoughts of doubt and cynicism and unbelief and instead cling to those thoughts that are, that are rooted in God's word, that are rooted in the promises of God and truth. And we give life to those, we, we breathe life into those, and we, we embrace those. So as we face our desperate situations, I'm sure each of these individuals, even the cynical ones, they had desperate situations. Every single one of us have a desperate situation. And they, they did as well. But doubt says that no one can help me. That's what doubt says. There's, no, no, there's nothing that, this is just a, a completely um, helpless situation. But desperation says, God is my only help. Like, God, you alone are my only help. It's just like this, there is nowhere else you can turn. So doubt says, there's no hope. It's like just super negative, all out, there is no hope. And desperation says, God, you are my only hope. You've turned everywhere else and you realize in this moment, God is my only hope. Doubt says that God is distant. You come up with all these reasons for why maybe God has forgotten you why God has neglected you, why maybe his promises aren't relevant for your life. And all those, those, are, those are thoughts of doubt. I'm there with you all. I've had those thoughts. And desperation says that God is present and he is able and clings to those, clings to those truths. And immediately Jesus, this is verse eight, and immediately Jesus perceiving in his spirit that they, that they thus questioned within themselves said to them, why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Booyah, so Jesus says. <laughs> but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose immediately, picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we, we have never seen anything like this. I love it. Jesus first heals the most important thing, like his spiritual sickness. But to demonstrate that he has authority to do that, he heals his physical sickness. Same is true today. And time and time again, that's the, that's like foundational, the foundational pattern of Jesus' ministry. He demonstrated his authority over sin by demonstrating his authority over sickness. And the same is true today. I want us to be a, a church that, that actually believes what's written in God's word. That he is able to heal, yes, our, our soul sickness, but also heal our physical sickness. This is the God that we're talking about. So tonight, I, I want each, each and every person that's here to leave with more faith in the promises of God and the truth of God. So I actually wrote up just 20 promises. If Pastor Tony, if you wouldn't mind passing those out. Thanks, man. Here, maybe Kayla, would you mind doing the other side of the auditorium? Thank you. There are thousands of promises in the word of God, thousands. So I selected 20. 
This is just to get you started. Because it's so funny in our desperation how we feel so distant from the promises of God. And we can't even, we can't even bring one to our recollection. We're like, my situation's so unique. It's so dire. There's nothing relevant in the word of God for my situation. And that's all, those are all lies. That's all bogus. But instead, God has equipped us with thousands of promises in his word. Yes, read the promises in context. Most promises are, are linked to some sort of command. So it's a result or fruit of obedience. But they're promises nonetheless. So I just, I just put down 20 promises here. Just to begin feeding your faith, fueling your faith. That when we seek his face, we turn from our wicked ways, he'll hear us from heaven, he'll forgive our sin, and he'll heal our land. Or Psalm 23, that we don't have to fear evil, that he's with us, his presence is with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us. How many of us need to hear that, like every single day? (laughs) His presence is with you. He's like the good shepherd right alongside you. Or Psalm 34, that when we cry out for help, he hears and he delivers us out of trouble. Or when we delight ourselves in the Lord, he gives us the desires of our hearts. That he's abounding in steadfast love to all those who call upon him. That he will renew our strength and he'll mount us up on wings like eagles. So we'll run and not be weary and walk and not faint. That we have no reason to fear. This is Isaiah 41. That he is our God. He can strengthen us. He'll help us. He'll uphold us with, our, with his righteous right hand. And so on and so on. These are the promises of God. They are yes and amen for us today. And I pray that these fuel your faith tonight. I asked um, Shelby Chizik to uh, share a testimony I heard last semester. Pastor Kyle and, and Tara, they hosted a, a testify night last semester. It was phenomenal. I was in tears as I was listening to the testimonies in my office, um, the recording of it. It was just phenomenal. Yeah, please come forward. Yeah, sorry. Sometimes I'm, I'm not very clear, so thank you. Um, she shared this testimony. It's just so powerful of how God has uh, really set her free uh, from anxiety. And I just want her to testify tonight to build each one of your faith. Because God builds our faith through his revealed character, through his promises, and through the word of, word of testimony from individuals in our church. So I wanted Shelby to share. Hi. Um, I'm Shelby, if you don't know me. Um, so, a uh, little backstory with my family-wise. Um, just genetically, um, depression is just an anxiety just run all generations. So, they kind of just knew... I was going to get it when it was going to happen. We didn't quite know that part. Um, And then in fourth grade, my parents just had a really rough divorce, um, which led from us um, literally living in a house for a week to waking up on the seventh day living in that house, being told, pack all your stuff, we're moving in 30 minutes again. And so just as a fourth grader, like, I don't know about you, but like, Packing my, or like picking up in half an hour right now is hard. So like packing all your stuff and going to a different town, not knowing what's next, just like built up a lot. Um, our, our dad didn't actually know where we were for the next few months, and I just started shutting down probably in fourth grade-ish. Um, if 
by fifth grade, I clinically got diagnosed as depressed um, and just had that label put on it me. Um, then a series of unfortunate events just kept building up where I, um, the doses, doses of my medicine just increased and increased over time. Um, by eighth grade, I was literally getting my heart, like, checked every few weeks to make sure the strength of my medicine wouldn't stop it by how strong it was. Um, and then I just continued to lose trust in people throughout the next few years of high school and stuff. And, um just severely struggled with depression. Um, and then, yeah, the medicine just continued to make me super sick. And um, I got to college. I lived the college life for a good half semester. Um, I ended that semester with um, some really hard news. Oh, hello. I may have died. We got gotcha. you. We want to hear it. So I ended that semester um, just with a lot of tough news that I received. I completely skipped finals and went home and just didn't know what I was doing with my life, to be honest. Um, one of my teachers had announced to the class that um, why I'd skipped finals and stuff I'd been walking through, and that student um, the next week invited me to this thing called Chi Alpha, if you've heard of it. <laughs> um, somehow, they, I ended up going. I don't know how they got me there exactly. Um, and then I just um, was in a place that if something was real, I needed to know then, and mm. so I started going. Um, Literally the first night was like, how could a good God let bad things happen? And so I was like, okay, I'm interested. And so I just started showing up and hearing what they had to say. Um, within a few weeks, I just finally <laughs> got down, um, cried on my dorm room floor about everything I didn't understand. Um, the next morning was the first morning in my life that I actually felt loved, and mm. that is the day I actually said I started following Christ. Um, and so I just was like, this is the most amazing feeling ever. I want everyone to know what this is like and experience this for themselves. Um, so within the next few months, I just started going crazy and <laughs> looking up things here and there and just running around campus doing only truly God knows what I was doing. So <laughs> that's a true story. And I just went through a crazy series of, I was just, people were praying for me and crazy stories from literally parts of my heart coming alive that I didn't know existed to mm. learning how to plug into God and dependence. And like my life literally was flipped upside down. Like if you talk to my mom within a few months when we first started talking again after I was following Christ, she one of the things she told me was, I know something's different because you don't even walk or talk the same anymore. Wow. And so it got to last winter break, my stepdad ended up in the hospital. So I wasn't like intentionally going there. And I ran into my doctor and 
she was like asking me questions about my depression medicine. And like I just accepted the fact I'm gonna be honest for life, everyone in my family is. Um, and she just looked at me and was like, there's something that's changed in you. I don't know what it is, but you don't need beyond that. And I was like, are you sure? Um, I didn't believe her because like I, I was pretty sure I was dependent on that. And so I started praying about it. Um, God really put trusting on him through that and being fully dependent on him and not on a medicine. Um, so I started praying about it and I'm crazy with dates, so if you ask me like what I was doing a couple years ago, I'll probably tell you. And so, um, anyways, God laid a date on my heart. I was like, why this day? And so I started praying into it, and he revealed to me why. And anyways, long story short, within all that, um, this Wednesday will be a full year um, since I've been completely off of antidepressants. Oh. And... Uh, just, yeah. So, I guess within all that, like, no matter, I guess it's just a sign of, like, no matter what could be, like, the biggest thing in the world that's, like, holding down on you, just, like, knowing that the God we serve is so much bigger, and so. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Thank you so much, Shelby. We are so proud of you. So excited for what God's doing in your life. So you cannot say that um, in any way Pastor Drew is telling anybody to go off medication or off antidepressants. That was, a, that was a healing work of Jesus Christ confirmed by a doctor, and I totally advocate for that. Um, talking with your doctor as, as you see signs of breakthrough in your life, yes, believe that God can do that in your life. Uh, God, God does that time and time again. Thank you so much, Shelby. Um, that's the God that we serve. This is how I want us to end this service. I want us to end right here at this altar space. If Tony and Paige don't mind coming and, and playing, they're going to lead us in a time of worship. The kids are going to be coming up here in just a few minutes. But really, any Sunday night that we gather, one of the, like, the highlights of the entire night and one of the main reasons we gather is to give time to wait on the Lord at the, at the altar is, is here at this front space. And so I want to give a little bit more context to what that means because I don't even know that I've really answered the, the first initial questions that I started with, like why we wait on the Lord, why prolonged prayer makes any sort of sense. And I would say the reason it makes any sort of sense is because we're given promises and we haven't seen the answers yet. <laughs> I mean, it's really as simple as that. And so there's, there are so many spiritual dynamics, internal dynamics going on that are unknown to us, that are immeasurable, that uh, are mysterious, and sometimes just like setting up those, those unknowns aside, like uh, allowing the, the mystery of prayer to not keep us from the power of prayer, we just press in. We say, God, I'm going to wait on you. And that's that process of waiting on the Lord and prolonged prayer. And yeah, sometimes it seems even repetitious. It's in that place when you embrace that process that you're actually allowing the, that desperation to grow, to point you towards truly your only hope. Otherwise, we take this, this kind of easy escape where we almost just get distracted out of that state of desperation instead of just pressing in and saying, okay, God, that's what I want is that the promise of breakthrough that's given to me. I want it in my life. And you press in and you persist. You see, that's what I saw in my life through my, my father. 
My dad was a single dad and it was at these altar spaces, these front spaces that I saw my dad literally with tears flooding down his face, crying out for our family. As his, as his wife was uh, going crazy and, and, and ruining her life, my dad found, found him place in, himself in a desperate situation and then he, there, he, there he was up here crying out to Jesus. We use in our church culture, we use this word altar, which is not like an everyday word for Westerners. It's not, I, I admit that. So I wanna give context of what that means. In the Old Testament, altars were a, uh, like a common occurrence of, of a significant uh, meeting spot with God, a, a spot to signify a, a divine moment with God, before God. And specifically, as, as, we, as you fast forward through the redemptive story of God, as God sets forth his, his regulations of worship, he establishes the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. And one of the altars is called the bronze altar. It's sat on the outer courts of the tent of meeting. So the outer courts, any of, any of us, if we were Jews, if we were Israelites, we could actually come into the outer courts. And so the bronze altar specifically, we would bring our sacrifice from our flock, from our goods, we would bring our sacrifice to the priest that's waiting there at the bronze altar. We'd bring our sacrifice to the bronze altar. He'd slaughter the, the sacrifice, the, the animal. He'd sprinkle the side of the altar with the blood. And then right there on top of the altar, he'd dis disassemble the, the, the sacrifice. So this altar became this, this gruesome picture of, of, the, of our own sacrifice, of our own dying to ourself and putting our hope in God. But then obviously a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Jesus and the power of God that's gonna be displayed through Jesus thousands of years later. And now Jesus stands right, right next to this altar as our great high priest. And we come to him at this altar with our sacrifice. The sacrifice of desperation, we lay it before him. There's also these pictures in the Old Testament of the altar being this, this place of great desperation, crying out to God for mercy. There's this, this picture in, in Exodus 21 where it says, it says, if you... If you're in your field and, and someone dies and it wasn't your fault that they died, see, like you didn't murder them, okay? <laughs> you run to the altar and you grab a hold of the horns of the altar as like an act of mercy. You're trying to declare your innocence before God and before others. And it's in that place that you find your mercy. What a cool picture for us. In this desperate world that we find ourselves, the desperate situations that we find ourselves. No, we're not innocent, but in Jesus, we can be found innocent. And so we run to that altar and we cling to the horns of the altar. And we say, Jesus, have mercy on me. In my day, I wanna see breakthrough. This desperation grows in our hearts. And it's in that place that we find mercy. We see that in First uh, Kings chapter two. Joab, who had actually carried out treason on David. After he heard that David died, ran to the altar and he grabbed a hold of these horns crying out to God for mercy and that's really what we're going to do tonight we're going to cry out to God there's going to be no formal ending the kids are going to join us if everyone stand in this place just come forward to this place this front area we hope you enjoyed this week's sermon for more information about Life Point Church please visit www.livethemessage.org